Welcome to episode 7 of Major Revisions. Today we'll be talking about the... Nope, that's not what we're going to be talking about. I'm reading the wrong <laughs> Sorry. Script. Today we're going to be talking about lasers uh, in a series on uh, research that each of us are involved in. Uh, so here with me as always is Grace Wilkinson, professor-elected Iowa State University. How are you doing, Grace? I'm great. Thanks, John. And Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing well, John. How are you? Doing great. And, of course, I'm John Walter at the University of Kansas. Hey, so I have a question for you guys. Yeah? What's that, Jeff? We, we are in the ho- we're in the holiday season now, and I was just curious if you guys had a holiday favorite food or drink that you look forward to every year. It can be from Thanksgiving, uh, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas, whatever you celebrate. We celebrate a weird mix of Hanukkah and Christmas at our house. Cranberry so, sauce. Or, yeah. Cranberry sauce. Really? Like from the can? No, 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 no. You gotta or... home make it. What's your recipe for cranberry sauce? Oh, it's really simple. Just uh, you know, bag of cranberries, some sugar, some water, uh, lemon zest, orange zest. I mean, it's kind of like the bare, the bare minimum there. The best um, kind. But you, you like, I just you, love cranberry. Do you mash sauce. them up? What's what's your what's your prep? You just, uh, just mash them or no? You just boil it. Just boil it up. Um, the heat pops them. Yeah, makes it kind of, you know, jelly and juicy and yummy. I don't like the, you know, some people like do a little food processor to kind of puree it and make it more of a, like a jelly than a, um, than a, than a jam. Yeah, but I like the, like the whole, the whole berries. Um, And this is like my favorite my favorite thing i look for- forward to it more than anything else i say my favorite dish has grace what about you well it ha- my favorite dish has cranberries in it but it is um because i am a celiac and my sister is also celiac which means that we can't eat gluten uh we can't have traditional stuffing so instead we make a risotto based stuffing that has all the other delicious Ooh. wonderful things about stuffing in it but it's arborio rice and a lot of butter so it's delicious. And that's my favorite. I could just eat that and nothing else. Ooh. Nice. Nice. How about you, Jeff? I actually kind of like, I kind of like fruitcake. I've never even had a fruitcake. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's not good for you. <laughs> like under any circumstance. It's like pure straight survival food. Um, but I kind of like them. I know people knock on the fruitcake. I think they just never had a good one. But you got to get like one of the really good ones that's like been rummed for several months, because you like where you, you make them like the beginning of the year, and then you just like constantly pour liquor on them, like throughout the year, and just set them in a dark place, and then like whip them out around the holiday season. Um, but I'm also uh, I'm growing to really like latkes as well, and uh, those are quite good. Mm. The the backstory I'm not no one in my family is actually Jewish. We just sent my kid to a Jewish preschool. And he was there for a couple of years, and um, so we just kind of naturally absorbed a lot of that culture. <laughs> and so it's uh, yeah, it's really good. He has a huge taste for uh, cream cheese and bagels. Uh, he really <laughs> likes that, so that's kind of his jam. He he independently like brings home Hanukkah books from school and everything now. It's uh, so yeah, it's kind of cool. And he actually knows Hebrew, but he won't speak it. But he did really well in it. I don't know if he'll remember that he probably won't he's only like five but well they say that's the time to learn a language right he's the only true 
reasonably true bilingual person in the house. My terrible Spanish and German, but whatever. So this time of year, we also have um, traditionally in Minnesota, and especially because I went to St. Olaf, Norwegian and Scandinavian tradition of lutefisk, which is also very common this time of season and is delicious if prepared properly. So maybe it's the Norwegian version of fruitcake. I've always wanted to have it, and I just can't. I just never have it. I recommend a Lutheran Church basement holiday dinner. It's the best place to have it. (laughs) Trip to Minnesota. Exactly. I'm totally down with that. I want to try that, and what's the the Icelandic one? Is it Scar? That's the shark that's lied. It's like Greenland shark that's lied and then stored in the ground oh, and then pulled out. I'm familiar, isn't there a Swedish one called Surströmming or something that's similar to that? We'll have to ask our Swedish friend. I'm not, I'm not familiar yeah, with the Icelandic we one. We have some... They all sound delicious. And a little scary. Um, so today we're talking about lasers. Absolutely. We're going to talk about the first in a series. We'll be discussing ecological work that each one of us is currently preoccupied with. So first up today, we're going to be speaking with Jeff about his research with light amplification by stimulated emissions of radiation. Or in other words, we're going to talk about lasers <laughs> and ecology. So, Jeff, I, I heard a story. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but that the original like, light that it's not like the actual lasers are really oscillating. But then the acronym comes out to be loser, <laughs> and so they changed it to make it laser. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> but anyway. Well, there's certainly nothing loserous about lasers. So you're going to tell us more about how you use them in your research? Yeah, so uh, a lot of what I work with is called LIDAR, or uh, Light Imaging Detecting and Ranging. And it's really at its core, it's using lasers that fire at very high resolutions, so like a lot of times a second, to measure distances. And uh, there's, there's a few different types. So there's one called a terrestrial LIDAR system, or a TLS. And what this is is... It really looks like a box that sits on a tripod, kind of like a camera. And then it has, they have anywhere from like one to two, there may even be some that have three lasers in them, but generally you have a laser and it is going to spin around in a circle and it's going to shoot millions and millions of points and basically build what's called a point cloud. So it's going to take all these measurements in 3D space and allow you to look at this point cloud like on a computer when you download this huge file. And, you know, what we're doing is we're using these in, in forest, and you're basically measuring everything out there in that forest. And people are using these to look at, uh, you know, like forest biomass. You can calculate, you know, how many leaves there are. We look specifically a lot at the arrangement of leaves. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about, and you guys are probably familiar with leaf area index, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the LAI stuff? So LAI is really just the amount of leaves in the canopy. And one of the problems in ecology that we've worked with is that when you look at LAI relationships to a lot of other ecosystem variables, like uh, productivity, um, you know, how much stuff is actually growing, or light use, or nitrogen use, you get a saturation problem that LAI kind of loses explanatory value at a certain point. So we've been looking at you know, the arrangement of leaves, like how the same amount of leaves are arranged differently in canopies to look at resource optimization and efficiency. Uh, we actually use another type of LiDAR system called a portable canopy LiDAR system that instead of sitting on a tripod and then measuring everything in that space, it's actually user-mounted, and you're walking and taking individual two-dimensional slices of the canopy. And 
So you usually walk, you know, 20 to 40, 50 meters, and you're able to measure everything above you at a really high temporal resolution and spatial resolution. Like ours gets within like a two centimeter, um, like uh, error range, right? So pretty much within, you know, give or take two centimeters. But you're taking so many measurements, it kind of washes out. Some of the TLS systems are really, really um, accurate. There's uh, Atticus who still works over here, Atticus Stovall. He, I can't remember how accurate his is. His, but his equipment's like forty, fifty thousand dollar for you know one piece of equipment. It's a little bit more accurate than ours, which is only about nine or ten. Um, so with the price, definitely comes, you know, some accuracy. Um, and so we're using this and looking at trying to create these novel metrics of complexity of some type. Like, how do you arrange leaves and how do you even describe that? And so, so we've been kind so of one of the, deep in sorry. the valley of that. Yeah, it's one of the sort of hypotheses of why weak area index might break down in its statistical relationship with other variables is because it's really only looking at the two dimension, and this offers multiple dimensions, three, I guess. Yeah, so we've been trying to figure that out. Like, I've actually I've been, um, been working with a gentleman at Connecticut, uh, Robert Fahey. I work with Chris Goff at VCU and also Brady Hardiman from Purdue, Purdue University and working with Atticus Stovall here at UVA. We've been trying to figure out how to best describe that when you're moving, because our system's like a 2D system that flattens everything to one dimension. I'll get to more of that later. And then Atticus' system and a lot of the LiDAR systems are three-dimensional. So you have a lot more information. So that much more information should be able to explain a lot more. But you get into this kind of uncanny valley in that you have so much more information that it's a lot of information. So how do you even start to use it? Because a lot of the work in you know, forest systems and ecosystems with LiDAR has been on quantifying biomass, which in a way is a little bit easier, right? Because then all you got to do is, we know that wood is basically half carbon. We're interested in the amount of carbon. Most of the carbon is in the the, uh, the trunks. So even if you have some air with the leaves, it's, you know, it's a relatively small number compared to the wood generally in a big forest. So all you really have to do, I say all you really have to do, this is actually a really complex problem, but you take a bunch of measurements, you can sew these measurements together, or these scenes together, um, and it basically kind of looks like a video game. Like, you never walk through a video game, it's three-dimensional, and you can see the walls and everything. But you're doing it within a forest. So you have all the, you basically have created the outer volume of the tree. So if you know what species it is, which you can usually pick up from the LiDAR because it's that good, you know, you have, the, all you got to do is solve the volume for the wood density and how much carbon it is and do some math and you have a biomass estimate. Mm. And the way that, you know, foresters have done this for 400 years is you either go out and you, um, you would take a, a measuring tape and you measure the diameter of the tree and then you use just the diameter of the tree based on what are called allometric equations, which are scaling equations, where a bunch of people have taken measurements of trees and height and cut trees down and created a mathematical formula where you can plug in a diameter of a tree and then get an approximate biomass from just that diameter. There's a lot of error with that. So with the TLS system, you can measure the whole tree and you get a little bit more of an accurate 
you know, measurement of how much biomass is there. Mm. And so, you know, we're more interested in kind of the ecological questions of this, which is kind of an area where we're just getting not only like a theoretical understanding, but also an ability to interpret the information to where we can ask some more stuff beyond how much carbon is there, where is the carbon, you know, where is it moving? Uh, so we're looking a lot more, you know, resource, uh, resource efficiencies and optimization um, questions as well. Um, so yeah, no, no, I, not to downplay the biomass issue, because a lot of times a lot of these use these cylindrical models where you approximate the outside of a tree as a cylinder, like a perfect cylinder, which trees aren't necessarily perfectly round. And so there is some error in that. And then leaves are a huge problem because of leaf angle distributions in the canopy. And that's stuff that I don't completely understand, only to tell you that it is driving some people nuts. <laughs> so it's really, and if it's windy and you're trying to shoot the laser, oh my God. So yeah, not in the most robust systems. Yeah, that seems like it get complicated very quickly. So how do you yeah, use kind of interesting. this um... two-dimensional instrument in the field? What are you doing when you're walking through the forest? Can you it's mounted on a... Sure, there's a ridiculous video of me somewhere, I think, on the VCU website using this thing. But So the actual LiDAR, the little laser that we use, looks like a small metal box. It's probably about 10 inches tall and 6 inches wide, 2 inches deep. Like, it's a small metal box. But you have to hold it at kind of a fixed height. So we have this big, large, fabricated aluminum frame that kind of looks like a shark. I don't know how else to describe it. And so it's called the shark. And you stand in this thing. Like, you have to mount and, like, pull yourself into it and then strap yourself in with a harness. And you have this large laser that sits on the front. And then you also have to have the battery that runs the whole system, which is usually, you know, like um, those tiny lead batteries that look like they're like little boxes. Um, the same things that run those little go-kart power wheels things. Did you guys ever have one of those when you were a kid? No. Nope. Not cool enough. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't either. But, like, I had a friend who had one, and they were sweet. But this is <laughs> little batteries in it. So you have, like, these two, like, heavy weights that counter it, and you have to make sure the, the height or the distance is just enough so they level each other out. And you have, like, this old-school climbing harness that you sit in, and it straps on. And then you put your little laptop up, and you have all this, you know, expensive equipment, and you connect it all with one of those piece of crap $15 USB to uh, serial connection cables sure and you that is crap? the have you had problems with those Jeff <laughs> these are the things that break and this this is the frustrating part to me about being a field scientist is that it's always like that weakest point is always something super annoying that's kind of hard to get and should work and it just doesn't all the time and it's very they break a lot and the best thing is that they all they're not interchangeable because they each have to have their own uh, driver that you connect to mm. so you you have to make sure you have the same type and you have the same driver that hooks to the laptop that also connects to the equipment Jeez. because all scientific equipment runs on serial port even though the rest of society moved on from that in like 1983 so yeah, that's the part that usually breaks down. But basically what you do is you we have to actually still pre-lay out transects that we walk. 
The problem being is that our laser is far more accurate than GPS. So if we want to, you know, we don't have the ability to co-locate those points in space and time. A, um, so we actually have to physically mark these lines out. And when you're walking, you actually have to you set the code that's recording the software to where you have a trigger button that when you hit it, it inserts a marker in the code that you have to that corresponds with a flag on the ground. Mm. So that way we can basically space out everything. Because the actual code is just a distance measure and um, an intensity measure. Because all, all how LiDAR works is it's shooting a laser and it knows how fast or how long it, if it, yeah, okay, let me rephrase that. It's shooting a laser and the laser, when it hits something, bounces and reflects back and it records the time. And it knows how fast the laser moves through air and so that takes that time and then just gives you the distance based on that. So the longer it takes, the farther away something is. Uh, but you get, so you basically just get one return in time. There is a, there is another system called waveform LIDAR, which is different to think about, right? It's, um, what it's doing is it can give you multiple returns for a given laser shot. And uh, it's kind of like a weird mathematical formula that does it, but it can give you up to like six or seven returns and so it will shoot a laser out, and it can bounce along multiple, multiple things within that path. Mm. Because there can be stuff on top of each other, and it can kind of, depending on what it is, and it gives you multiple intensity measurements. Unless it hits an intensity that's really high, and so a higher intensity means a harder surface. So, yeah. The way that we account for that is the um, same way that you calculate a lot of those LAI or leaf area index measurements is using light extinction curves. The idea that you know, in a forest, obviously you lose a lot of light from the canopy. Mm -hmm. And so when you're using one of these, these la LIDAR systems, you have the problem of your, you know, if you have, you're going to hit the lowest leaf. So if you use your measurements raw, you just have a bunch of low-hanging leaves that you hit. But fortunately, we've done a really good job characterizing, like we understand how light moves through a canopy and how the, um, uh, you think about the, amount of radiation that hits the top of the canopy to how much is hitting the bottom, we have a pretty good understanding of that and we know it's a you know a negative logarithmic function. That you have this extinction. And so you can use that, readjust your data, and then that gives you basically kind of the hits that you're missing or an estimation of the hits that you're missing. And um, we use that in turn to where we give this data. So you basically have this, a huge set of measurements and then we're processing those through a slew of mathematical equations, basically, at this point, kind of doing some exploratory research to best quantify how to explain that, right? Because, you know, what's the most important thing really depends on the question that you're interested in. Like, if you're interested in how, you know, how a leaf is using nitrogen, is it more important to know the average max height of that forest or is it more important to understand like each like if you think of LAI it's a one number for one forest right mm -hmm. so it's the average number of leaves per one square meter is all that it is which usually saturates around 8 generally 8 you, know, you can get 9 or 10 maybe in the tropics but usually about 8 what if you think of then the forest instead of just like that one square that we're talking about if you well, the term is well, so think of it as like multiple columns. All right, I'm trying to think of this. How to explain this? 
Okay, so they're called voxels, V-O-X-E-L-S. But imagine that you could break up a forest. So say you have a forest that's 100 meters by 100 meters wide in area. It's a right? very organized forest. Say that it was very organized. So imagine, so you have those squares of ground. Imagine the 100, you know, what is that, 100 by 100? So you have, like, what is that, 10,000 mm -hmm. squares? Um, I'm not good at math for a scientist, so. Well, you did find there. And then, <laughs> yeah, define the air. So imagine your forest is 20 meters, 20 meters is the highest tree, right? So now you've added that third dimension of space, the 20 meters. So now imagine that for each one meter by one meter square on the ground, we've now added 20 meters of height. So we have 20 meter cubes stacked on each one meter on the ground. So now we have a cube, like a Rubik's cube. Mm -hmm. But instead of being three by three by three, it's 100 by 100 by 20. So each one meter by one meter by one meter cube of space, that's a voxel. So it's so, like a pixel oh, except with volume. Yeah, it's volume in a pixel. It's a really good way to think about. Um, so when you start looking, it's, we use the one meter thing just because it's kind of intuitive and everyone can kind of envision that amount of space. And it's, it's kind of a good mathematical way to look at it. And so if you start to look at not just the LAI of that forest, but maybe think about the density of vegetation in each individual voxel. <laughs> so it's, you know, if you think about how maybe how that distribution of vegetation is distributed. Say if you have, you know, you have a very dense forest, like one of the forests we worked in is in the Great Smoky Mountains. It's a really, really dense forest. Is it? And that vegetation is pretty dense all the way throughout the canopy because you have a very thick understory, but you also have a fairly thick canopy. So you get this forest that has an LAI of around eight, and it's nicely distributed throughout that column. However, you move to a place in Wisconsin, we worked at a place called Treehaven uh, near Stephen University of Stevens Point. No, it's near Rhinelander, actually Rhinelander, mm -hmm. Wisconsin. The forest there, there's a lot that has some understory that's located in that swamp area, and it also has a big under overstory. But when you move up into the drier areas there, you have a really dense overstory canopy, but like no understory. So you have this a lot of void space in the canopy, like a lot of empty voxels basically, and then a lot of really dense voxels at the top. If you look at those places from space, uh, like a satellite that can give you an idea of greenness, uh, or NDVI, the Normalized Difference Vegetation Index, which is a number that usually ranges from like 0 to 1, with 1 being like really, 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 really super green, like super saturated. Those places are going to have really similar NDVI measurements. They're going to have really similar LAI measurements, possibly, right. right? They can have both of those be the same, but that distribution within the canopy can be different. So does that distribution, or distribution, that arrangement of the vegetation in the canopy, how does that affect things like productivity and resource use efficiencies? Mm. If you have the same amount of leaves, but they're distributed in a more efficient way, can you make a forest grow better? Can it use nitrogen better? That's kind of what you know, we're looking at. So Jeff, do we know what a more efficient way is at this point? No, I don't think we do. We... We're talking now about, you know, because we're trying to, we're, we're working a lot on bridging, using this PCL to 
get it to 3D to be able to work with, because the 2D is really easy to work with and really easy to quantify things. We're looking at the, I think one of the steps we want to move toward is, is being able to get some of these same metrics that we're looking at out of 3D data. And then the idea would be to, let's say we go out and scan the forest, we can create these whole little video game maps of the forest, and then we can go through and maybe think about, if we look at all of our data and see what you know, what the most, the best efficiencies are, we could then go in and look at how to manage a forest to increase these efficiencies. And then you could go in and say, you could, you know, using a model or using some type of computer program, like extract and remove trees, right? Mm. And then you could go back on that raw data and then you could go back and rerun these things and figure out kind of these metrics again, right? Like how does removing the understory affect uh, some of these complexity metrics? And, uh, you know, like maybe the vegetation area index uh, distribution or the maximum LAI, maximum VAI within a canopy, or maybe where the mean height is. And then you could go through and, you know, kind of remodel, like go back and model that data and then see how that affects things. Or you could go and then, you know, even from that, you could go out and figure out how to best manipulate the forest within your model, within your computer program, and then go out and actually do that in the forest and then test that and see if it works if you have a forest where someone would be willing to do that so jeff i have a question on those lines then how um specific would these um how, how generic would these relationships end up being or specific to the forest because it would seem like the species composition and the way that that forest sort of developed and matured in northern wisconsin compared to the great smoky mountains would be a bit different so yeah so that, that's a good question that's um that's what we're kind of working on now. Like this summer, I went around to about, I think, 15 field stations and forests, uh, ranging from the Ordway Swisher Station, our biological station in Florida, up to the University of no Notre Dame Environmental Research Woo! Center. I you did. Right, uh, Undurk in uh, uh, Lando Lakes, Wisconsin. And um, we also visited a lot of places in the Northeast. We were at Harvard Forest. We were at um, Arnott Forest outside Cornell. And the idea is because we're working on a grant now to understand the spatial distribution uh, of a lot of, like, uh, so of looking at these canopy structural complexity. Like, how does that vary across the continent? Is we don't know that, first of all. Um, a lot of this work has been done in like, a couple places. So there's been a lot of work in Upper Michigan, uh, around, like, the Huron Mountains, the University of Michigan Biostation, and then... Um, a lot of this work at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center out in Maryland from uh, Jess Parker and his crew who actually created the systems that we use now. And so, you know, we know from these two places we have an idea. The question is, is because a lot of that work has shown that some of these measurements, primarily one called rugosity, which I'll talk about in a minute, is a better predictor of NPP than just raw LAI. So... Mm -hmm. If it is, then we should try to figure out how to, you know, well, does that relationship hold up beyond just some forest in the Midwest? And so that's kind of where, what we're working on now. And we're going to, we, well, we actually have, you know, a lot of that we're going to show at the AGU, or the American Geophysical Union meeting next week. So um, you can feel free if you're there, come Friday and see my talk in the morning. I'll be talking about the spatial variance of these across the continent and how they relate to some light use efficiencies. And uh, Brady Hardiman, who I work with, is going to be talking 
about how they relate to some satellite measured metrics. And then next year I'm going to go in and fill in the forest that I didn't get to this year. <laughs> and then uh, hopefully we'll... We've also run into the issue. We've been working with the with NEON, the National Ecological Observation Network, and um, the, we've been working in their plots, which are distributed across the country as well. And so once we get some productivity measures from them, like some raw uh, tree measurements, then we'll be able to look at those productivity relationships as well. And mm. so we're kind of in the first stage of this. And then the next stage is going to be looking at the productivity measurements. And then after that, like I'm really excited to look at not only the management applications of this, but also how to plug this into to climate models and to ecosystem models as well, like the ED2 model. You know, a lot of these will have some type of structure measurement in them for forests, but it's like one number. And the number they have is it's, it's okay, but we think we might be able to improve on that. We just don't know how yet. Um, we got a bunch of ideas. <laughs> so we just got to do the actual work and then kind of fit that out. So, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. A lot of field trips. So I, speaking of those field trips, I have a question. So you're talking about how these lasers have the ability to, you know, look at objects and things that are at about two centimeter resolution, you were saying? Did you ever yes. have any interference from animals or such? I'm thinking specifically about being at the Ordway and those giant orb-weaving spiders that are in the trees in Central Florida <laughs> that terrify me when I'm there. You know, I'm pretty sure, actually, that I shot a, a bird. Uh, not literally shot, but figuratively shot a bird with a laser one time. Um, because we had, like, one measurement. Like, if it hits sky, like, it doesn't record anything, right? Like, it just there's nothing it ever bounces off of. But there was one recorded bounce from like 55.6 meters in the sky, which is obviously not a tree in Wisconsin. So I'm pretty sure I shot a large bird. Or one of our mosquitoes. But um, yeah. yeah. So we're on average taking around 600 measurements per linear meter. Um, so you're looking at, you know, it's, what is that, a resolution of average hits at six per centimeter or something or fewer? And um, so probably not. It's one of those things that you take so many measurements, you probably wash some of that out. Um, but I don't think so. The problem in Ordway, actually, is Ordway is the weird one that spits out because it's, it's um, a pine savanna system. John, I don't know if you... Have you ever been to uh, the Ordway station, John, or Central Florida? Nope. So you have these like big open kind of fields and Ordway's just like, it's like a couple lone pine trees and then you go like 10 more meters and there's like another pine tree. Like, it's just a really open system and um, it's a nice outlier point for us because it's kind of really far to the one end of the spectrum of a, least, a less complex system. That's and, interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's a really high light system too. Given, given some of the difficulties with NDVI, do you expect that the metrics that you're developing will perform more similar to NDVI in these less complex highlight systems and then their you know, maximal utility will be in forests that are really complex and have very dense canopies? I think so. Like it, So far, it falls out on a nice little exponential curve with... Uh, a good little R square around 0.5 or so, 0.6. 
at least in some of the Midwest stuff. And I hope when the productivity comes in, we'll get a little bit of a tighter fit going on. Like right now, we've been looking at a lot of this versus FPAR, which is the fraction of photosynthetically active radiation used by the canopy. Um, the best way to think about that is you measure the amount of light at the top of the canopy and you measure the amount below. And the difference is FPAR. Hmm. And the, the metric that we've really been using is what I call rugosity, which the classical definition of that is the relationship or the area of wrinkled space. So you can kind of think about the difference between if, you're fl if your hand like, were a flat surface versus the actual topical surface of your hand. Um, so Jess Parker and his crew defined this term originally as a surface rugosity or a top rugosity. And what it is, is it's the, I'll look up the formula so I don't misquote myself here, but it's basically the standard deviation of the max canopy height along that system. Because mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a variance measurement. And I'm literally going to pull up the R code for this. So I say it. Yeah, so, nope, wait. Uh, this took me like two months to do, so it's huge. Um, yeah, it's a standard deviation of max heights is what it is. The way that we've been looking at the rugosity is called canopy rugosity. And it's been described in literature as the standard deviation of the standard deviation of the uh, mean leaf return height, which doesn't sound like anything, right? Like that sounds like total absolute gibberish. And <laughs> that's partially because it kind of, that's not really what it is. It's not really a standard deviation of a standard deviation. That number will be really small because we're actually finding this number varies between 0.5 and like, like about 55 or 60. And so what it is, is you go back to that, that voxelization understanding, right? So if you imagine a single transect and then you have each meter, you go all the way up to the top of the canopy. And for each meter along the canopy, you have a measurement of the density of the vegetation within that voxel at that point for each column. So what you do is you adjust that based on the mean return height. So on one hand, you could take all the returns in one column, like one meter column, and just average those, right? And that would give you a mean return height. But what we do is we adjust it based on where the peak density of vegetation is. So a denser area of the canopy, you have more returns there, right? So you basically adjust it for what the mean vegetation area index is, where those heights are, to get a mean column leaf height. And then from that, you then take the standard deviation of that, or the squared variance, rather. Excuse me, it's a little bit different. And then... You do that for every column on the transect that you you did, and then you take the squared variances of those. And then you adjust that by the mean of that squared variance, and that in turn gives you the canopy rugosity measurement. And I have no idea how the hell I'm gonna explain that in a 15 minute AGU talk when I have to do all this other stuff too. Because it's kind of a weird measure, but it's a really good measure so far compared to a lot of other things. Because what you're really doing is you're just, you're looking at how differently those leaves are arranged within that canopy and adjusting based on where those return heights are and where those density returns are. 
Now that said, that may not be the end-all be-all best way to explain the complexity of a forest, but it's a pretty good first step. And it's as easy to understand, I think, as like those weird, you know, uh, carbon-nitrogen isotope plots. Like those took me forever to understand at first. Are you hating on so stable isotopes right now? It's got to be as easy as that. Are you What's hating that? on stable isotopes right now? No, no, I'm not hating on stable isotopes. I just got back a whole lot of stable isotope data yesterday I'm really excited about, but I could not understand what the heck some of that was at first. I was like, how do you have a negative percent? And what's that extra little dot next to the percent sign mean? So, I don't know. It's There's a lot, there's a lot of ways to look at it, and we're kind of exploring that now. And, you so, know, when you, when you think about integrating with models... It's good if you can have one number for a forest, right? So if you can have a number for a forest that's a little bit more, or it offers a better explanation of the actual variance of that forest and complexity, then that's a good thing. And that's something I think we can use pretty well. Yeah, John. So, so with, back to this Rugasi measurement, am I, am I interpreting what you said correctly that in a sense what you're doing is you're measuring the variability in return heights within you know some unit of on the ground area and then you're measuring then the rugosity is then the variability of those variabilities across a larger area is that is that right yes you're okay. you're taking the variance within a column and then aggregating to that whole transect and then averaging out to the transect. So you're basically getting an average mean column, a density adjusted mean column leaf height. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So it's, which in, in turn has been adjusted, you know, based on late extinction. So of course there's like a little bit of error in that, right? Because you're never going to be able to have, you know, measure all of these leaves. Or you, you just can't. Like it's physically impossible. There's a Robert MacArthur paper from like 1962 where he first tries to do this, and it's I think it's the one where he's like dropping pencils from a ladder or something, and like or whatever it is, and measuring the first leaf that he hits, and then doing that again, and doing that again, and then giving an estimate of what's going on in the forest. And so, you know, it was a lot easier to do ecology. I was just gonna say ecology was way more renegade back then. Yeah, it's, it's I don't know. Um, so, Jeff, yeah, I think it's you yeah, use lasers in your science, which is lasers. pretty cool. But if there was one way <laughs> to make your lasers cooler, you can use your wildest imagination here. What would it be? So, there the other um, two things, and there's people I think at Boston and uh, Martin up in Canada, and I don't remember what university it is. There's people working on this and I can't remember all their names, but they're great people. They are using lasers at different wavelengths and multiple lasers that are trying to measure a lot more things than just return densities. And um, your boy Greg Asner is on this too, because another form of, of LIDAR is airborne LIDAR, where you're shooting lasers from planes. And this is how we basically have all the digital elevation models or terrain maps that we have in the country. And um, trying to get lasers that will actually pick out like nitrogen content in leaves, uh, or different type of you know uh, 
well, any type of uh, leaf chemistry. Like Asner's created like these crazy chemical leaf maps of the Amazon. Like that's amazing. Um, if we can get that and combine it with a lot of these other things, and just keep going down that path, oh man, it's gonna be great. Okay. The the problem becomes, and I think you guys may attest to this too, as it was in science, especially if you work with people who work with a lot of tools, is there's definitely tools people, and there's applications people. And so I don't know if the I think the lasers are getting there, and um, but also like keeping all of us in conversation is really the big challenge. Because I mean, it's just you know if you can refine the precision, that's great. If I can get you know, TLS systems that'll measure everything from one point and do them even faster. That'll be great. But if we can also, you know, keep up the communication that's been, we've been working on and keep going down that path, that's going to be even better. Um, you know, because there's always going to be somebody who understands the tool and who can build it better. There's always engineers out there. And, but, you know, engineers, like, they don't really care necessarily sometimes about the applications of things. Just like the people who are doing the applications or doing the science only care so much about the tools right I mean, that's that's fine there's room for everybody it's a big tent so doing that and then yeah I and mean, you guys know it's oh nice. absolutely <laughs> not, i don't think i'm speaking out of turn it's everybody has their enthusiasms and if we all stay towards the same goals that'll be good so i don't know cheaper lasers would be better too a cheaper scientific equipment in general would be great yeah cheaper scientific yeah so <laughs> If you could get a laser that can not only measure the distance, but also give you the isotopic uh, composition, how awesome would that be? That would be great. My my preferred ecological superpower. So if you had to think, what ecological superpower would you like? I've often said <laughs> I that I would like this. to be able to taste the hydrogen isotope ratio <laughs> in organic matter. That would be what I would like my superpower yep. to be. But if a laser did that instead, I'd be much happier. The laser that gives you the red field ratio, just kind of automatically. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> so, so that'd be cool. Barring the development yeah, of so, superpowers, I think lasers are probably the answer. What is your actual, if you had to pick an actual superpower, is it still that? Or is there something you would rather have instead? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not certain. John, do you have one? Yeah, I'm trying to even think of what my ecological superpower would be. I know we've talked about this before, but we talked about it last when I was doing a lot more field work than I'm doing now. And <laughs> my my opinion might have shifted, but I'm not sure what to yet. <laughs> well, maybe- I remember this because we, we had this discussion like back when we all took terrestrial ecology. And I think the one that I wanted at the time was to be able to uh understand like the source of where co2 was coming from so you could like like to be able to partition it myself and know absolutely where it was oh yeah like as far as like in a like in a forest like was soil respiration coming from the roots or mycorrhizae or where was it actually coming from like being able to do that would be awesome did you have a mechanism by which you were going to do that were you going to smell it no but lasers are clearly (laughs) the way forward (laughs) Oh, my. Well, I, I do have one more question as we're... The, yeah, sorry, John. Go for it. Here's the problem with ecology superpowers is how do you get that through peer review? <laughs> I assume that you could develop a certifiable and standardized method for, say, tasting hydrogen isotopes. 
<laughs> Hydrogen <laughs> isotopes were analyzed. Yeah, using I would my just need to be calibrated against I. a um, mass spec. What's the known standard for hydrogen isotopes? Um, the hydrogen isotope standard is. Oh boy, you asked me a question and I should have this off the top of my head and I don't. I want to say it's this smell. So, Vienna standard mean oceanic water. Oh, is, is that? Yeah, that's right. Okay. I believe. I was trying. I thought that one was oxygen. I believe it was maybe also for hydrogen, uh, but I don't remember Sweet. off the top of I my head. I remember the P. Which is something that I should. So, all right, there we go. The, I remember the PD yeah, River yeah, mud Mac or something for carbon. Yeah, Mac would give you a minus for that. Hmm? Mac was a big fan. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of talking at once. He discovered the. <laughs> well, I edited it all out. Whenever I remember. Um, yeah. So I. So so yeah, that's that's lasers and. I have one more question for you, and then I think we're at the point where we're going to wrap up. And my question is: Is anybody even using no, these is... lidar images to create art? Yeah, totally. And where are they? To art? You know, I don't know. Because that could be pretty. You know cool. where they they are used. You you know where lidar. Does there's two areas where lidar works really well that a lot of people don't really think of is one well anthropology because you can scan things and see kind of what's um, like if it was in a forest like you you can go on Google Map and or any of these lidar systems and look in the forest and you can find you know like ancient Mayan ruins underneath forest canopy because when you do like a lot of the discrete return lidar systems will create, you know, they'll, they'll be able to map the floor because, like, some lasers will penetrate to the floor of the forest. And some of those are really high resolution, like sub-centimeter resolution from airplanes. But also they're going to hit the canopy forest as well. But also they're going to pick out the things beneath the forest. So you could look at this from an aerial image and not and just see, well, green forest. But if you have LiDAR of that, you'll be able to pick out, like, oh, there's a temple underneath those forests as well. And you can go in and look at that. Um, the other one is actually in forensic science is that when you have a crime scene, you can go in and scan that with like a terrestrial LiDAR system. Because remember, it creates a three-dimensional point cloud of basically everything outside of that tripod. So an undisturbed crime scene, you can put this in the middle of the room, scan everything, and you now have evidence of what that crime scene looked like that you can then go back and examine. Because a lot of these now like have the cameras on them that can match the points to camera and put that in like real image. So you have a three-dimensional representation of everything in that room that you can then go back and use in court. That's snazzy. Um, so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting uses for this stuff that I think people are really getting into. And I think it'd be really interesting to look at art. And um, you know, I've always been I've always wanted to do this, and I've never done it. Is to use the, those digital elevation models or DEMs, and you know combine them with 3D printing. And I know there's people out there and there's stuff on Makerspace about how to do that. I just never mess with it myself. But to be able to print out, you know, like actual systems that you're working on at like that huge scale, like that's kind of cool. Yeah, so, that'd be amazing. Well, thanks. I don't know. Thanks for sharing about your research and lasers. And now we know how to use them to uh, answer ecological yeah, I should, questions. Um, I'll try to make the picture. Um, Atticus, I think, still has on YouTube a virtual tour of one of the forests at the Smithsonian that he knitted together. It's like 50 scans put together, and you can actually walk like through the forest at the Smithsonian. And um, it's kind of cool. 
So, yeah. Do you guys have any closing thoughts? Exciting things? You've read, you do cool seen, stuff. Heard? No, now I'm just thinking about Indiana Jones using lasers to find temples. So that's probably what I'm going to think about for the next hour or so. Thanks for giving me that. Well, thank you, Jeff, um, for talking with us today. This has been Episode 7 of Major Revisions. You can check us out online at majorrevisions.weebly.com. Check us out on Twitter at major underscore revisions. Or you, and you can find our podcasts um, on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you look for podcasts. But actually just those two places. All right, so thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Laser beams in my dreams. Laser beams in my dreams. Laser beam in my dream. I can't get on, I can't get off. Laser beam like a sawed-off dream.